This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dagena Dorr, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Johan Elverskog about his new book, The Buddha's Footprints, an Environmental History of Asia, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. Dr. Elverskog, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. Um, I wonder if we can begin the interview by maybe saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian and Inner Asian studies, uh, but also Buddhist studies. Uh, that's a great question, one that I've had to answer many times. And I guess the, the short answer is I was young and foolish. Um, clearly, I should have gone into finance or something you know, more profitable. But no, uh, seriously, um, I'm a Swedish immigrant. And when I first arrived, I had a rather jaundiced view of of the states, and this being the early 1980s, I was invariably drawn into the the punk rock and hardcore scene, which was great at critiquing pretty much everything: capitalism, militarism, general cultural stupidity, I guess you'd call it. Um, it also forced me to kind of go out there and, and protest nuclear weapons, apartheid, Reagan's wars in Central America. But it also made me look for kind of, I guess you'd call cultural, religious alternatives. Um, and that's when I went to university in, in Berkeley, which was back in the 80s. I mean, Berkeley at that time was still kind of running on the countercultural fumes of the 1960s. I, you know, basically through cultural osmosis, I kind of um, became drawn to Buddhism as kind of an alternative way of living and thinking. And of course, this was came through, you know, interacting with people in the area, but also reading like the beat writers like Jack Kerouac and Gary Schneider. And then, of course, I took uh, courses with a whole range of outstanding Buddhist study scholars at, at Berkeley. Um, and so basically, I guess the short answer is, is that as with many others at that time, I basically started to think and believe that Tibetan Buddhism um, had all the answers to the ills of the modern West. So, you know, basically I was a spiritual seeker. And so when I graduated, I went to South Asia to study the Dharma, as we're, and maybe now we say practice the Dharma. Um, however, like during the course of my time there, I, was, I lived in India and Nepal for three years, studying Buddhism, studying languages. Um, I kind of came to the eventual realization that um, Tibetan Buddhism, and especially Tibetan Buddhists, didn't necessarily have all the answers. Um, and it, basically over time, you know, during this three-year three period, my interest and focus kind of shifted um, and particularly became more his, historically oriented. Um, you know, and in a certain sense, I guess the basic question I want to understand is how did Tibetan Buddhism, this very, you know, obscure tradition, basically be- become a global phenomenon? Um, and I guess in a certain sense, the other side of that was what was I doing running around in South Asia? You know, what, why, why had I followed this, this particular path? Um, and so basically I tried to, you know, made the, you know, the shift to the kind of historical and as, as you well know, studying Buddhism in inner Asia, if you want to understand Tibetan Buddhism, you have to get involved in East Asian studies, inner Asia, 
China and engagement with the Mongols. And so when I went to graduate school, you know, in order to do that, uh, I went to Indiana University, which was one, you know, the best place that I could actually have scholars working on all those fields and train me in order to basically answer, answer my question. Why was Buddhism a successful world religion? Wow, very fascinating. And thank you for sharing that. Um, and now can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write The Buddha's Footprints? Ooh, um, again, another big, uh, complicated question. I mean, I guess when anybody writes any book, there's a, a long and convoluted tale related to how it came together. I guess there's personal reasons, academic reasons, and uh, I guess social concerns. I mean, my own kind of progressive, progressive values. Um, but as you know, you've read the book, of course. Um, there is kind of like an origin story to where this book comes from. And again, it goes back to my time in South Asia. And, you know, I guess you can kind of call it the the beginning of the critical turn or perhaps simply the bursting of my Buddhist bubble. And, uh, I mean, uh, of course, I mean, that whole process of me kind of reformulating what I thought about the Dharma and what I was doing with my life um, was obviously much longer and more complicated than this one particular episode. Nevertheless, this event or this episode that did happen, it did play, I mean, a foundational role in my kind of reformulation of how I thought about Buddhism as an environmental religion. Um, and of course, this idea of Buddhism as an environmental religion is pretty much, you know, one of the reasons that I, I was drawn to the tradition. Of course, it was kind of like the antithesis of, of the West, you know, as everybody had said, like going back to Lynn White's famous article in 1967, like the roots of our ecological crisis. You know, the main reason we have this problem is Western religions and the biblical command to dominate nature. And, you know, and he specifically said, we need better religion. And, of course, he pointed out Buddhism as, as, as this. And, of course, I'd read all these books and, of course, like Gary Schneider and his kind of romantic pans to, um, to Buddhist, Buddhism and the environment. And so, you know, much as today, many people, you know, think that Buddhism is an inherently environmental religion. And, you know, when I know when people read this book, they will not be very pleased with my, with my argument. But I think it's important to kind of understand the interaction between these two things. But anyway, so the episode was I was traveling around uh, Bhutan and I went to a house and, you know, lying on the floor were uh, three backpacks that were made out of snow leopard skin. And of course, you know, snow leopard at that time, it was a huge environmental issue. It was Peter Matheson's book, The Snow Leopard. And it was like one of the most endangered species on the planet. And basically it was kind of like this cognitive dissonance. Like why, why are these Buddhists running around with snow leopard skin backpacks, you know? Um, and so this kind of like started this kind of reformulation um, you know, about, you know, what I was, you know, what was the Dharma? What were Buddhists? Um, and um, this kind of like set me in motion in this kind of like reevaluation that I was just talking about earlier. And of course, this kind of the reevaluation that I, that I did when I went to graduate school again in the early '90s. This was, you know, the beginning of the post-colonial turn in Buddhist studies, most notably with uh, Donald Lopez's book *Curators of the Buddha: The Study of Buddhism Under Colonialism*. And you know, as much with all post-colonial college scholarship, was looking at like how did imperial uh, rule and you know tie into systems of knowledge and basically you know the, the standard move was everything you knew about buddhism was wrong right you thought buddhism was non-violent well of course buddhism was violent you know 
everybody thought the Buddha was a feminist. Well, actually, he was, you know, Buddhist tradition is grossly misogynistic. And of course, this is this kind of scholarship has been going on for 25 years. And of course, my own scholarship has very much been informed by this, looking at how Buddhism is tied into economic systems, political systems, or whatever. Um, but of course, you know, the questions that I did for my dissertation and later works never really went back to the environmental question. And then what kind of pushed me in that direction is after I finished my last book, uh, Buddhist, Buddhism and Islam on the Silk Road, uh, you know, of course, you know, when you finish the book, you're like, well, now what do I do? And at the time, my son, who was becoming kind of like an ardent naturalist and environmentalist, he was basically like, why aren't you writing about the environment, right? The biggest problem the world is facing is like the age of the Anthropocene, climate change, and all the rest of it. And so in a certain sense, he kind of you know, and, and in terms of one way to put it, he, he was basically like, why are you writing about identity? The world is on fire, you know, do something with your scholarship. So in a certain sense, he kind of inspired me to start thinking about the environment. And of course, you know, went back to, you know, this, the snow leopard episode. Um, and in a certain sense, along with everyone else, you know, like at that time, everybody was kind of doing what I guess you call the environmental turn and trying to think about you know, environmental issues and how it relates to your scholarship and all the rest of it. Um, and so that's kind of like the impetus. And then, you know, of course, starting a project like this, again, I wasn't trained as an environmental historian. And basically, I was starting from scratch. I had no, you know, like a corpus of material that I was going to rebuild. Um, so it took me a long time to kind of read through all this material and even more time to kind of conceptualize it um, as a coherent argument. Like, what was I trying to say? Why is this important? you know, why would anybody want to read this kind of a thing that we all think about when we write a book? You know, what other scholarly debates that I talk about that I just want to say, oh, Buddhists destroy the environment. That's not very interesting. And more, the, more to the point, scholars have been saying that for 20 years. Um, but so again, eventually I came up with kind of a, a thematic format and basically questions that I wanted to address. And then, you know, I pulled it all together and voila, here's the Buddhist footprint. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely a very timely publication and I think a really much needed uh, perspective on environmental history um, on Buddhism and also Asia. Um, so let's maybe go into the book now. Um, and in the preface of the book, you make it clear that this book is, first of all, a critique on the rather pervasive discourse of eco-Buddhism. Um, so what do you mean by this term eco-Buddhist um, discourse and why is it problematic? Um. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I'd have to problematize it in a certain sense. And I would say, you know, that is kind of my my project, but, you know, but it's also not really what I'm doing. Um, as I just mentioned, you know, the kind of the critique of Buddhism as an environmental religion, you know, that's already happened, right? I mean, a whole range of scholars, you know, I mean, Malcolm Eckled um, and, and, and other people, um, Ian Harris, et cetera, et cetera have gone back, you know, done the post-colonial kind of reevaluation and said, you know, if you look at Buddhist texts and, the, you know, and, and particularly their view of nature, everybody comes down and says uniformly, Buddhism is not an inherently environmental religion. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of my start, as I say, that's my starting point, you know, I mean, and for me, the, the problem is, you know, that, that's just like to say, okay, all of these scholars have already said that. And now what do I do with it? But this ties into two like other problems that I'm also grappling with, which is if you know Buddhist study scholars have made this argument for 20 years, why doesn't everybody know this, right? I mean, and so I have that story in the book about you know the first time I 
gave a public presentation about this. This was back in 2012 at Berkeley, of all places. Um, and, you know, after I gave my talk and, you know, try to, you know, make, lay out my argument, a gentleman in the audience stood up and said, you know, do you want to be the, the, the Grinch who stole Buddhism? <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, basically he's like, I'm the one who's destroying, you know, the positive image of, of, of the Dharma. Um, you know, and of course, you know, in the audience, of course, people like Jake Dalton, professor at, at, at UC Berkeley, you know, and he's written that you know, Tibetan Tantra involves human sacrifice. I'm like, I I'm not the first person to make the argument that Buddhism has problems. Um, but, you know, but, you know, in the lurking in the background of this, of course, is he had never heard of, you know, the Buddhist study scholarship that had kind of, you know, reformulated this, this whole, you know, the whole tradition. And so, you know, I think it's important to, to, to make that argument. But at the same time, that's not my main argument. My, my, I have other fish to fry or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, you know, I mean, part and parcel is this kind of, you know, the reevaluation of what, you know, scholars call modern Buddhism, this kind of creation, you know, that made Buddhism into this spiritual philosophy for the modern age. It's anti-materialistic. It's, you know, anti-politics. It's anti-consumerist. It's basically all of the righteous progressive values that we all uh like you know and again these are the reasons why i was drawn to the tradition myself um but you know again so making that art i know this is one reason everybody's going to you know read the book and critique the book and you know challenge my argument but again that's already been done you know so that's not necessarily that interesting i mean so the the two points that i want to make along these lines is one that you know again one of the main driving arguments of this book is, is that we have to take Buddhist Buddhism seriously as a world historical force, right? We have this kind of view of Buddhism that it kind of like floats outside of reality. It's all about mindfulness or whatever. And it never like changes economic systems, political systems, culture, societies, which of course it does. I mean, it's, it's you know, you know, one of the major, you know, arguments of the book is that Buddhism is much like Islam or Christianity or communism or capitalism. It's a massive system that radically transforms everything. And when you look at Buddhism as this kind of, you know, to use Bruce Lincoln, Bruce Lincoln's term, he talks about, you know, some religions are maximalist, like, you know, Islam or Christianity. And like nobody writes books about the Middle East or the Islamic world, you know, without talking about Islam. As I say, like everything happens in the Muslim world goes back to um, Islamic thought, Islamic practice or whatever. In the Buddhist world or in Asian history, Buddhism doesn't seem to do anything. It's there. Everybody knows it's there. You can see monasteries and all the rest of it. Um, but nobody makes the next step and says, well, what did it actually do? Um, why was it so incredibly successful? Again, you know, the, the, my uh, initial question. Um, and so what I'm trying to show um, is that Buddhism does matter in world history. Um, and by not taking it seriously as, you know, as, as a, as a, you know, that it impacts the environment and economic systems and all the rest of it, we're missing huge swaths of not only Buddhist history, but Asian history and ultimately world history. Um, so again, you know, that's one of the, you know, one of the elements, but the other element that I also want to highlight at the beginning of this, uh, interview is that again, people are going to say like, Oh, you know, you're, I am the Grinch. I'm the one who demolished the positive view of Buddhism and the environment. Um, and what I stress is that's not what I'm doing. You know, I want to support everybody in the modern contemporary world who uses Buddhist teachings to promote, you know, environmental activism. And there's a lot of great stuff that Buddhists in Asia are doing. They're transforming discussions about economic development, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's great. 
But my argument is those arguments are not being formulated initially from the Dharma, right? They're basically drawing on modern Western environmental discourses and then like, you know, basically reverse engineering the Dharma to support those arguments. And I think that's great. It's wonderful. You know, anything that we can do to save the planet is phenomenal. But my main problem is, is like when you take this modern construction or whatever you want to call it and then project it back to sixth century China, right? Sixth century Chinese Buddhist did not think like Bill McKibben, right? Why, why would they, right? That's 1,500 years ago. Um, and so that's kind of like my starting point. Right? We need to understand Buddhism as a historical force, but at the same time, Buddhism can be good for, uh, a good force you know, in the contemporary world. Yeah, definitely. Indeed, there's in the book. You also mention um, very uh, various, you know, uh, environmental movements and initiatives, right, uh, led by different Buddhist communities around the world. Um, and in the book, you also recall critical observations made by um, scholars like Donald Lopez and Stephen Tizer that historians of Asia know little about Buddhism and scholars of Buddhism care little about history. I kind of talked about this briefly in the previous question, um, but you emphasize that this is a problem that still remains true today. Right? So how has this problem contributed to this pervasiveness of the eco-Buddhist discourse? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and um, yeah, in the book, I call it the Lopez problem. I don't know if Donna Lopez will appreciate that I, that I call it the Lopez problem. But um, I mean, I, I took the idea from, um, from again, from his book and the, the introduction to the curators of, of the Buddha, the study of Buddhism and colonialism. And he, in, in, the, in the introduction, of course, he goes through kind of like the, you know, or the Saidian kind of like analysis, like why did Buddhism look this way, you know, and the rest of it. And we all kind of know that, um, you know, Buddhism was studied as a philosophy. It was heavily philologically based. And of course, in certain ways, it's still, I mean, I, w- I would argue theologically oriented in various ways. Um, and so, you know, and one of the consequences of this, of course, you know, especially the theological move, um, is that Buddhism is completely taken out of history. And again, this kind of like minimalist uh, approach that I was just talking about. Um, and so Buddhism like is never seen as actually engaging with history or engaging with, you know, transformation of, of, of societies. And I think this is a, this is a fundamentally, you know, mistaken view of Buddhism. Again, like, you know, the, the main thread throughout the book is that Buddhists had huge impact. Um, you know, obviously I'm looking at the environment, but of course, you know, that spirals out to, you know, systems of, of, of economics, you know, social relations, understanding, you know, your place in the world and all the rest of it. Um, and so this is what I, you know, you know, again, this has been kind of like the, the lodestone of, of all of my scholarship, you know, ever since graduate school is like, you know, how do you take Buddhism seriously as a, as a world historical force, you know, economically, politically, or whatever, you know, as you know, um, and my work on the Qing dynasty, you can't talk about the Qing or the Manchu empire, whatever you want to call it, without taking Buddhism profoundly seriously. It makes no sense, right? I mean, and so, but of course, you know, Asian historians, for whatever reason, you know, for all the, all the reasons noted above, just simply don't. You know, you can write a book of China, a history of China, and never mention Buddhism. And my argument would be like, you know, I have the line in the book and say, that's like somebody writing a history of the Mediterranean and forgetting to mention Islam and Christianity, right? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Nobody would do that. But in, in the Asian context, you know, let's just take it for granted. Buddhism doesn't matter. I don't need to know about it. 
Um, you know, and that kind of ties into Tizer's argument about, um, you know, I mean, he has that article about the fear of Buddhism. You know, scholars, you know, they look at this kind of really complicated philosophical text and Huayan Buddhism, like, how do you make sense of this? What does it relate to anything? Um, and they, they have this fear of actually engaging with it. But I mean, you know, again, the, you know, the first half of the book is like, to understand Buddhist history, you have to understand the doctrine. What are the practices? These things matter, right? Much as you would take Islamic thought seriously if you're writing about the Middle East. Um, and so, you know, both of these problems, right? So, I mean, you know, uh, Lopez, the Lopez problem is, um, as you point out, you know, hist- historians don't know much about Buddhism. They don't really care about it. And on the flip side, Buddhists, because of their own, you know, disciplinary blinders, they don't take history seriously. And so, you know, this is like a double whammy problem that Buddhism is not brought into um, historical analysis. Um, And I think, again, this is, you know, a a major problem that we we need to engage with. Um, I mean, Buddhism, like any religion, makes people believe and act in certain ways. And we need to understand them in order to understand Asian history. And to this end, you know, in this book in particular, I wanted to, you know, look at the Buddhist view of nature and its consequences. And, you know, as I try to show, hopefully show in the book, these are profound. I mean, you can't understand Asian history and environmental history without taking Buddhism very seriously. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think the environmental history um, could be a blind spot, right, for both fields. Um, it has been, right, for for a long time yeah um and your new book the buddhist footprint um seeks to resolve these problems right the lopez problem through the environmental history of buddhism um so what are your intended interventions here in the book um yeah as, as i mentioned earlier i mean i mean i, I presume i mean again it's very hard it's very problematic to make presumptions about your readers intentions and, and what they're going to do with it but I mean, I think invariably one thing that will draw people to this and, you know, and everybody, you know, much like the gentleman at Berkeley asked me if I want to be the Grinch who stole Buddhism, you know, everybody will kind of fixate on like, wow, eco-Buddhism was a mistake. It was a construction of the 19th century. Let's reconceptualize all this is about. And of course, that is what I'm doing. But I mean, you know, that's not the main thing. Um, that's kind of like, you know, um, as I said, it's already been done. Um, so instead, what I what I try to do, um, I try to use that material to address other issues, um, and these are what I call my kind of three historiographical interventions. One of them is the religious, um, the other one is the spatial, and the third is the temporal. Um, and let me try to unpack what I'm what I'm doing here. Um, the religious um, is just quite simply to make historians take religion seriously. I mean, in a certain sense, you know, when I was talking about like Islamic history or Christian history, um, there are people who do take it seriously. But what kind of really struck me, um, there was a survey of an AHA, the American Historical Association, a survey in 2009, um, you know, and it was called like finding religion or finding the old time religion or something like that. And this was, of course, after 9-11. And basically, you know, the historical field was like, wow, we need to take religion seriously. It changes the world. Um, but so then they did the survey of their, you know, I don't know, 4,000 4, members or whatever, how big the organization is. And I was stunned. I mean, I can just ask you, how many, uh, in, in this survey, 2009, how many historians said they study religion as a phenomenon of human history? 
remember from the book, very little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's 3%. It was 3%. And I was like, what? Of course, my whole life and everything I've done has been trying to make religion seriously. And of course, there's all kinds of reasons for this. You know, history like arose, you know, as the whatever, the handmaiden of the secular nation state and et cetera. And of course, the secularization thesis, religion was irrelevant. Why study it? Um, and so, you know, so the, you know, basically the religious argument is to say, as I've been highlighting earlier, you know, Buddhism needs to be taken seriously. I mean, not just Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Zoroastrianism, whatever, um, you know, and this kind of like, you know, it's, it's probably in world history, it's probably in Asian history, but it's also, you know, and like I started getting involved in reading environmental history. I started realizing that it was a, a huge problem in environmental history at as well. All right. I mean, so you, you just mentioned like, oh, doing environmental history is great. You know, we need to, we need to add this to our, you know, methodological toolbox, whatever. Um, but, you know, when I started reading all this environmental history, again, there was this, you know, gaping kind of, you know, blind spot, you know, nobody talked about religion. And so, you know, I was talking to Paul Sutter, an environmental historian at Boulder, who, you know, is the editor of the Weyerhaeuser series. And, uh, you know, he read my manuscript and he's like, you know, this is great. You're, you're like one of the few people who is doing environmental history who takes religion seriously. And the example that he gave is kind of like to highlight how problematic it was in the field of environmental history he's, itself. He pointed out to Bill Cronin's, you know, famous book, Changes in the Land, you know, a study of, in, you know, in the pure in the Indians and Puritans in, uh, in colonial America. And as, as Sutter pointed out, he doesn't mention Christianity at all. And you're like, wait, but the Puritans were like kind of like Christian fanatics, right? I mean, you know, that's why they were here. Um, don't you think their theology, their kind of understanding of themselves and the world made a, played a role in how they interacted with the, the environment and the Native Americans? And so this kind of, you know, you know, this kind of fueled my, you know, interest in kind of like bringing religion, you know, into Asian history, world history and environmental history. That's a long, long winded answer to a short, <laughs> short, short uh a short intervention. But anyway, the second one is the spatial one. And this, this has been a question that I've been interested in for a while. I mean, as you know, in Asian studies, you know, it's problematic, you know, the, well, in all kinds of fields, the nation state model is being challenged. And so a lot of historians are kind of like looking at, you know, larger ways of conceptualizing interactions. And so, you know, there's Atlantic history or Indian Ocean history. And in Asian studies, there's a you know, now the term for it is inter-Asia. So basically, how can you conceptualize Asia as a unified space of interaction? You know, this was kind of an underlying, you know, idea of my earlier book, Buddhism and Islam. You know, how do you conceptualize, you know, Asia and Middle East? You know, you can say like, oh, let's do that. But like, what are avenues that you, you know, do that sensibly and coherently? And so, you know, trying to think of Asia as a unified space of historical action, you know, of course, the, the ready answer is Buddhism, right? Buddhism went from Sri Lanka to Siberia and Iran to Japan, um, and it unified all of Asia, you know, for pretty much 2,000 years. Um, and so if you want to think about Asia, this is a great avenue into it. And of course, the other link of that is that, um, well, Buddhism, you know, there's the environment everywhere and they interacted with it. So that, you know, is a way of, you know, making a kind of a spatial reconceptualization of Asia as a unified historical unit. So that's the second one. And then the third, the temporal one, this is more specifically tied to, you know, debates within environmental history. And again, you know, when I started reading all this environmental history, kind of like, you know, how do I do this? And what am I supposed to be arguing about? 
it became very, very readily evident that, I mean, environmental history claims to be global. It claims to be, you know, world history, but it's deeply Eurocentric, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, most of the scholarship is done in Europe, done by Americans on the American or American West or whatever it might be. And of course, Asia kind of falls by the wayside. You know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the environment's important, you know, and of course now Asian scholars are getting involved in environmental issues and debates, but, you know, the agenda's already been set by the kind of the Euro-American uh, framework. And one of these is the, is the kind of, you know, like the, the, the hinge of world history and environmental history is basically European colonialism, right? Connected with the Columbian exchange, right? You know, whatever the new world has just discovered, crops and diseases and all this other stuff go, goes in all directions and basically changes the world. And there's certainly legitimate reasons for that. But it basically, again, you know, with the Eurocentric, you know, narrative as it is, it again puts the Europeans at the center of world history, right? And so, you know, other scholars are trying to problematize this, like Kenneth Pomerantz and other people, you're kind of reconceptualizing what role did Asia play in all of this? And so, you know, by looking at, you know, pre-modern Asia, my, my, my temporal frame is, you know, 500 BCE to 1500, it's to say, you know, these phenomenon, these kind of transformations were happening in Asia long before Europeans showed up on the scene. So those are the three uh, interventions, if, you, if, you, if I can use that term. Thank you. Yeah, these are really exciting kind of perspectives you're bringing into this um, larger discussion about environmental history and also um, the place of Buddhism, right, in sort of inter-Asian history. Um, and chapter two and three of um, the first part of your book, which is um, the, what the Buddha taught, um, you point out that although Buddhist traditions around the world differ widely in their beliefs and practices, there's actually a sufficient continuity that unifies them as a pan-Asian religion. And this continuity is exactly the ritualized social relationship between the laity and the monastic. Can you tell us more about this ritualized social relationship between the laity and the monastic, and why is this relationship considered sort of foundational to the social architecture of Buddhism across Asia, and also to the Buddhist um, exploitation of the natural world? Wow, um, that's a that's a great question, and also a very big one, <laughs> um, and uh, it covers many issues. So uh, let me try to answer it coherently. Um, first no offense, but let me note that you skipped over chapter one, right? Um, which, you know, I mean, for everybody who's going to read the book down the line, they'll all learn this is a, is a, like a short biography of the Buddha. And basically, you know, to, to use the biography of the Buddha to kind of open up the discussion of the historical context, you know, and basically tries to explain why he made the particular kind of interpretive moves that he did, you know, and how he was trying to explain, you know, the kind of radical transformations that, you know, what are, you know, of the age that we call the axial age, the development of larger states, introduction of iron technology, urbanization, and particularly introduction of money. And so this is kind of like the, you know, the first introduction to, you know, my argument that Buddhism is not all about anti-materialism and anti-consumerism. It's completely the opposite. It's all about making money, being rich. In short, it's a prosperity theology. And I bring this up since I know you are a scholar of Buddhism um, and that maybe this whole chapter is just basically old hat and you didn't need to bring it up. Um, and I didn't need to rehash it here. But and, and I have to confess, like, you know, this is one of the hardest 
issues that I had with writing this book. I mean, this is harder than you write any book. Like, you know, again, who's your reader? What do you have to explain? What can you assume that they know? And on all of these things. And so I, I readily imagine that, you know, scholars of Buddhism will read this introductory material and they might see it's trite. They might even think it's ridiculous. Like, why is he talking about this? It's obvious. But, you know, I don't think necessarily a China historian of any dynasty of the Tang or the Ming or the Qing or, you know, a historian of Southeast Asia necessarily knows all these things. Um, and again, this is one of these, you know, I'm much less like a, an environmental historian of the American West. Right. I think it's you know, I can't make the assumption that they know anything about what's the difference between the Nikaya and the Mahayana or whatever. Um, and since I think Buddhist thought actually matters, you know, I think this needs to be conveyed. Um, and moreover, I also think it needs to be historically contextualized, you know, which I try to do here, kind of like the, you know, religious studies or biblical studies terms, sits and leave in, right? You know, what is the context that produced these, you know, radically different um, interpretations of what the Dharma actually was? Um, because, I mean, I think all too often, particularly in eco-Buddhism, you know, people just kind of like pick and choose, like what they think, like, let's make, you know, let's take something from, you know, Huayan Buddhism. And then let's talk about Dogen and, 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 and Zen in Japan. And then on top of it, let's just throw in Tibetan because we all love Tibetans. And it's like, it's completely ahistorical, completely decontextualized. You know, none of these traditions have anything to do with it. I mean, they, they obviously, there's something to do with each other. But I mean, like without putting them in their historical context, like where these ideas come, when they came from, and you know, how these ideas, you know, they were responding to very different historical circumstances, right? It's like, you know, that's a basic, you know, historical approach. And so I think, you know, when you muddle these waters, it's very hard. And so, you know, that's what I'm trying to do here to say, you know, let people who don't know the tradition that Buddhism is radically different all over Asia, it changes enormously from, from the beginning to the end. And, and it's still changing today, of course. Um, and so that's, again, a, lo a long sidebar note. So to, to your point, um, Yes, in a very cursory manner, I try to convey, you know, the inordinate complex varieties of varieties of Buddhism. But then, as you pointed out, I pivot and and say, yes, there is this enormous diversity. All these, you know, traditions, you know, the idea of shunyata versus the idea of anatman, and you know, the Buddha's a man, the Buddha's a god. These crazy, you know, radical differences. Um, but at the at the, you know, but all of these traditions at root have this social relationship between the uh the laity and the, and the and the monastics and i think too all, all too often in the west you know as a result of the modern buddhism the kind of you know decontextualization decontextualization of the tradition everybody just focuses on the monk and basically rejects or doesn't care about what the laity do but i mean you know you look you know historical demography and you know one of the sources that i cite in um you know in southeast asia in the medieval South, southeast asia you know, only 1% of the population were monastics. So, you know, using contemporary language, what about the other 99%, right? And so, you know, if, and if you're going to write environmental history, those 99% have to be included. They're the ones who went out there and made the money that enabled the monks to live in the monastery um, and avoid, you know, life. Um, and so this is the, you know, one of the, you know, underlying argument why I think th this is um, really important. Um, and another kind of component of this is that, again, like I mentioned with the monks, you know, everybody focused, what do the monks do? What do the monks think? They meditate. Let's, oh, Buddhism is meditation. Of course, you know, now as anybody, everybody knows, 
almost no monks meditate. It's like, like historically, it was like 0.01% of monks maybe meditated. You know, I mean, like the whole birth of an, you know, mindfulness in Eric Braun's wonderful book shows this is like a creation of, you know, colonialism in Burma, a response to the British imperialism. Um, and so, you know, if we're going to understand Buddhism as a, as a historical force, you just can't look at what the monks are doing. You have to look at the laity and you also have to look at Buddhist states. And the states are, of course, you know, resource, you know, extracting entities in order to maintain themselves in all kinds. And so these, you know, I call them the three Buddhist actors. So, you know, again, these are the things that we need to look at. If we're going to write an environmental history, you can't just look at the monk, you know, the hypothetical monk who's sitting there meditating. Maybe he's not cutting down a tree, but somebody cut down a tree in order to make his life possible. Right. And so, and again, another long discursive sideways bar. But anyway, to get back to your actual question, why the lay samga ritual relationship matters is because one, it's again, as I mentioned, it's often overlooked. And two, it is at a damp, is it, it's, it, it is basically this relationship, this dynamic between the, 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 the working class or the working people and the monastics that basically fuels the laity to generate wealth. Right, they need to produce excess wealth to support the unproductive monks, right? And this is kind of like the you know the underlying proto-capitalist you know um, argument that I make. And thus, it is this relationship and its underlying idea of the field of merit that the monks are a field of merit because they live according to the vinya that fuels Buddhist wealth creation. Since it, since it is by giving to the monastery that one gains not only spiritual or karmic merit but also social status. And this is a big thing that I keep going back to that I think it's been overlooked in the in Buddhist studies is the Buddhism and the connection with, with, with wealth and status. And so thus in many ways, I think, you know, the, the kind of the, this ritual relationship is basically the engine that drives Buddhists to venture forth, you know, on what I, I call the commodity frontier using research from, you know, environmental history of the British Empire. And it's this reason that they exploit you know, the commodity frontier, they exploit its people, they exploit its resources for their own personal gain and for the glorification of the Dharma. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you for um, the explanation and also for going back to chapter one and kind of giving us <laughs> a... <laughs> no worries. No, very solid uh, kind of um, laying down of the groundworks of the discussion, right, for the rest of the discussions of the book. And speaking of wealth, um, chapter four discusses that the Buddha Dharma is a prosperity theology. Um, so what do you mean by this term? Is this a critical response to the Weberian readings of Buddhism as anti-material, anti-consumerist? 
Yes, um, it is def definitely a critique of, of Weber. Um, as you probably remember from the book, I begin by you know using Mark Elvin's uh, comment about you know whatever Weber's whole analysis of other religions other than Protestant Christianity. He basically sums this up by saying it is ludicrous, um, and I kind of um, concur with that. Um, his kind of interpretation of what Buddhism is is that it's anti-political, anti-economic, or doesn't have economic rationality, as he calls it is very problematic. Um, but at the same time, um, I also want to highlight that my whole book is basically heavily indebted to Weber's whole kind of intellectual project. One, of course, he took religion seriously as, as, as shaping you know, economic action. Um, and in that regard, in a certain sense, I'm like, I tip my hat to Max Weber. And basically, I'm arguing that Buddhism was Protestant before Martin Luther and John Calvin, if that makes any sense. In other words, you know, just like Weber, I mean, his whole argument in the Protestant ethic was that Protestant theology, especially the indeterminacy of, of, of predestination, was kind of like, you know, to use Silicon Valley speak, that was the secret sauce that made modern capitalism possible. And what I'm doing in this book is I'm basically taking this argument and flipping it, flipping around, or I don't know if that's the right term, but basically what I'm arguing is that Buddhism was the secret sauce that made proto-capitalism possible in pre-modern Asia, right? And so, and thus, you know, this is what I, you know, I, I use the term prosperity gospel, which of course carries a lot of, you know, intellectual baggage. I know that from, you know, the, the Christian tradition, but I think it's very much the same, you know? I mean, you know, much like today, the prosperity gospel, you know, promoted by people like T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen or whatever, you know, it basically says that wealth is a sign of divine grace. You know, you, you deserve it. You're a good Christian. And so you have a big house in Houston and that, you know, confirmation of you being, you know, a righteous uh, devotee of Jesus Christ. Um, and what I do with this idea is that I basically say Buddhism is making the same argument, of course, but they're not doing it in the Christian framework. They're doing it in the context of karma, right? The fact that you are wealthy is a sign that you're, you're, you're a good person, right? Um, and so that's what I show in this chapter and earlier ones is the kind of the enormous amount of, you know, I don't know, language or talk or, you know, discussion um, about wealth, getting it, earning it, and, you know, flaunting it, to be quite honest, that's found in Buddhist texts, right? There's, I mean, I pick out all these, and I, I could have done hundreds more, but there's all of these passages, you know, in these texts, which, you know, which when you read them, you're like, how can anybody think that Buddhism is anti-materialist? There's like all these, you know, basically, you know, like call like the lifestyle of the rich and famous, right? I mean, it would make like, you know, all these kind of sheltering magazines, you know, that are so popular among the urban elite today, make them look ridiculous. You know, there's all these like rich people who have four mansions. They don't come down, you know, you know, they, you know every every season they go to a different mansion. They have 80 cartloads of gold. You know, they have tiger skin, you know, bedspreads and all the rest of it. And, you know, and what I find interesting in these, is like when they talk about these things, none of these things are ever condemned. Right, it'd be so easy for the Buddha to say, "Oh, that's terrible. That's a horrible example of de desire and attachment, and that's what causes suffering." And it starts. I mean, basically, what all of these passages—if you accumulate them—is basically the glorification of wealth. All right, the Buddha never says, "Don't buy such things." I mean, and rather, I mean, the way that it's framed and the way that it's presented is basically glorifying the production of wealth. And then if you so that if you are a lay person, you are a successful lay person. And in, by meaning that you're a good Buddhist, you should have all these things. You should have the four mansions. You should have the, you know, 
tiger bedspread. Um, and, and, and again, this kind of like, this is how you show that you are a good Buddhist, that you have good karma, that you are, you know, a smart and, you know, savvy individual who knows how to play the market. And the Buddha like always talks about this is great. And of course, you know, the end game of all this is that with your wealth, you can live a very nice life, but you can also support the Dharma. And so this is this kind of, you know, whatever logic of, of the prosperity gospel. Um, and so the whole idea, again, like going back to Weber, that Buddhism is anti-materialist or anti-consumerist, I just don't find it in, in Buddhist texts. And if, again, if you travel in Asia, go to a Buddhist monastery, like <laughs> it's just ostentation's display of wealth. Um, and, you know, and the other side of this is like, again, this is like a standard component of, you know, modern scholarly arguments about the success of the Buddha. Everybody goes, oh, yeah, it was the merchants who supported it. And so there's all these books about and articles or whatever, about you know, the merchants, they supported the Dharma and they, you know, supported the, the development of urbaniz- urbanization and all the rest of it. Um, and so, again, that's in a sense, that's nothing new. But what I want to do in this chapter is that, you know, not only confirm that scholarly consensus, but take it one step further and ask, sure, we know merchants supported the Dharma and more, you know, and, uh, but, the, but, but why, I mean, you know, why, I mean, Buddhism is a very radical idea, this idea of no self, it's incredibly counterintuitive to basically any other religion. Why would anybody follow this tradition? Much less would it like become like this, you know, engine that drives Buddhism to come all, all over the, you know, the Asian continent. Um, and so, you know, this is basically the Protestant secret, secret, secret sauce argument. You know, basically that it's the radical idea of no self that actually gives kind of theological ballast to wealth creation. Because if you are nothing, right, it, you have no status on account of your birth, you know, the whole caste system idea, the Atman theory and all the rest of it. Um, you know, and again, as you know, I pointed out, you know, the Buddha, he just mocks Brahmins. I mean, that's like one of the standard, you know, argument critiques. Like, you think you're so special because you were born a Brahmin? That's nothing. You're nothing. There's nothing that you did to achieve that status. And so this is kind of, you know, the argument that I make that this kind of radical idea basically justifies the, you know, the, the idea that self-worth is only, you know, manifested through money. Right. And again, I probably go too far with this argument, but I, you know, I kind of like parallel it with, you know, the neoliberal meritocracy of today. But basically, you know, it's the Buddhist idea of no self, which, you know, it obviously undermines the Hindu theory of Atman and, and the caste system. But basically what the uh, no self theory does, it justifies the marketization of society that was then unfolding in axial age India. And thus it is precisely you know, this way of thinking that not only brought merchants into the fold, but also propelled them out onto the frontier to make money, which invariably entailed exploiting the natives and their resources for the glorification of Buddhism. Yeah, very fascinating. And following, I guess, our discussion now, um, Chapter 5, Consumption, further challenges this popular image of Buddhism as anti-materialist or even anti-consumerist. So how have Buddhists consumed natural resources historically, and what does it say about Buddhism's view of nature? Yeah, that's great. Um, Yeah, both of these issues are really important and and really, and they're, you know, inherently connected. Um, And so, like, in terms of the Buddhist view of nature, you know, as I mentioned earlier, other scholars have shown that Buddhism is not an environmental religion by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, it basically has nothing positive to say about the the natural world. And maybe there's some later stuff um, in Chinese and, 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 and Japanese texts, but as I 
you know, argue in the book, you know, building on the work of others like Mark Elvin and Haro Shirane. I mean, these are basically responses to uh, the, the loss of nature, right? This kind of like aestheticization or romanticization of nature, much as we have today, is a response to the fact that, that we have destroyed nature. Um, and so in a way, you know, I, in a, I don't really make the, the argument, you know, uh, that Buddhism is, you know, um, whatever anti-nature or something rather what i look at is the consequence of this view um like much like the what i did in the previous chapter about no self theory um and i think that the, the thing is is that um this concatenation and particularly the the kind of the status one-upmanship you can possibly call it and the consumption that is required in order to show your status is kind of again one of the engines that drives this you know proto-capitalist exploitation um, of the natural world and the way that I do this, maybe counterintuitive, in, counterintuitively, um, I look at the Vinaya, um, the monastic code, you know, that that, that organizes um, how how monks and nuns should live their lives. And so there's all these rules about you know what, what you can do and what you can't do. And basically, the structure of all of these rulings is like a monk does something bad, they go to the Buddha. And they say, it, what should we do about this? And the Buddha like, gives a disquisition saying, well, this is bad for X, Y, Z reasons. And then gives a ruling like that's expulsion or it's like punishment of this or that or the other. Um, you know, so there's the, you know, the famous one is the, the first one is that, you know, a monk goes back and has sex with his wife. You know, the Buddha learns about this and he gives a big you know, discourse on like, you know, sex is an attachment and desire and leads to suffering. And so, you know, monks are not allowed to have sex. Um, and so you know, these things, because they had dealt with like everything that a monk might possibly, you know, do in his in, or none do in their lives, um, they cover all kinds of, you know, issues and they're voluminous. Um, and I think what's interesting is they also provide a, you know, insight into the world of kind of early med medieval India. And one of the things I find interesting is this crazy list of objects that, that are found in these rulings. I mean, so in one ruling, there's this, you know, discussion of what kind of sandals can a monk wear? Um, and instead of just saying like, all right, you can, you can only wear a leather sandal, you know, and then that's the end of it. And let's, let's move on. Instead, there's this like enormous list of like these crazy shoes that would make, you know, whatever the characters on sex in the city, like, you know, have great dreams. Right. I mean, you know, shoes with peacock feathers, shoe, shoes with ram horns, shoes with gold. I mean, and it's just this, this long, long list. And you're like, why, what is, why, why, why is this here? You know, what's the point of this? And of course, the, you know, the answer that eventually is after like, you know, listing this enormous list of things, basically the Buddha says, you can't have any of those sandals. You have to wear, you know, whatever, these less ostentatious ones. Um, and so again, you know, what's going on here? And I mean, it basically it's kind of reflects the social world, obviously that the monks were operating in, you know, which of course was the wealthy merchant elite. And, you know, the assumption probably or the assumption that I make is, well, these things were probably there, right? And these are the things that monks could see, they can interact with. And, of course, you know, basically, you know, the ruling is, well, you can't have any of those things. But at the same time, you know, there's no similar condemnation of the laity having these things, right? So, you, you know, if you're a member of the laity, you can have peacock feather shoes, gold shoes, copper shoes, shoes with ram horns and all the rest of it, right? And so, again, this is part of this kind of, um, you know, prosperity gospel because all of these, you know, objects, as with any, you know, consumption, is, is status marking, right? The fact that I can have a pair of shoes 
Manalo Blanocks or whatever is a mark that I have the wealth to do that. And it, you know, says who and who and what I am. And so, you know, much like with no self, it kind of works the, you know, the same way. And so, you know, what I'm arguing here, the Buddhist tradition, you know, counter to Weber and the, you know, anti-materialist, anti-consumerist idea, Buddhism is completely the opposite, right? There's absolutely no break in Buddhist text on, you know, on, on, on the, you know, the, 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 the production of wealth and the display of ostentatious wealth, right? You know, much less is there any, you know, claim like, oh, you have to, you have to stop doing this because it, you know, it, it, you're exploiting nature or, you know, killing a tiger to make a tiger skin bedspread. That's like a bad thing for moral or suffering of the animal. It's like, that's, that's, that's irrelevant. If you have a tiger bedspread, good for you. You know, that shows that you're a good Buddhist. Um, and so, you know, this is, you know, I'm trying to like, you know, flip the argument around, um, you know, wealth and extraction confirms that you're a good Buddhist. And this, of course, relates ultimately to how Buddhists see nature. There's no qualm in killing, extracting, um, or any of that kind of thing. You know, basically, it's a sign that you have good karma, you have the wisdom and wealth and the wherewithal to do it. Um, and so this consumerist or extractive nature is found throughout Buddhist texts, um, which basically only present nature as a vehicle for wealth production. So like one example that I use is, you know, a text about the ocean, you know, you think it'd be like the perfect, you know, time to give like the romantic, oh, the ocean is so beautiful. Look at the sunset. Oh, it's so soothing waves. And all of course, the Buddhist texts don't, don't do any of that. Instead, the only thing that matters about the ocean is what you can extract it. And there's this long list of like the gems and, you know, cat's eye and all of these stones that you can extract from it. And that's all I cared about. You know, I mean, I think it's like the complete opposite of how we think about, you know, Buddhist understanding of nature. Nature is just something that can be used uh, to produce wealth, which, of course, you know, parallels modern conceptualization of nature. That's what we do every day. Um, and we're suffering the consequences right now as a result of this pandemic. So that's what I'm what I'm trying to argue is that Buddhism promoted this view, the this like a modern, basically a modern style view of nature. And as a result, Buddhists did indeed go out and make their fortunes on the commodity frontier, like much like whatever people do in West Texas, pulling crude and fracking out of the ground. Um, there's no difference in a certain sense. Um, so part two of the book, uh, what the Buddhists did um, cover Buddha's expansions across Asia, spatially and temporally. And in chapter six, you kind of cover this history of the expansions briefly. And chapter seven, begins with the comparison between this Buddhist expansion with later European colonial expansions in the modern period, that both expansions were propelled by a drive to control and exploit the people and resources in the commodity frontier. Um, so can you tell us more about the purpose of this comparison and what does it tell us about the spread of Buddhism and the success of the tradition in many parts of Asia? Yeah, great. Another wonderful question. Um, so yeah, thanks for this. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the answer is yes. Um, I know many people will, will kind of question like my sanity maybe, or even like the validity of trying to make this comparison. I mean, like how can you compare the British empire to Buddhist expansion? The people are like, that doesn't make any sense. That's like, they're too, it's like comparing apples and oranges or something. Um, but for me, I mean, again, with my argument about, you know, thinking of Buddhism as a historical phenomenon shaping, you know, how people act in the world, it is precisely or only by making, you know, these comparisons that we can begin to rethink Buddhist history and its role in shaping Asian and world history. Um, and I think 
one of the reasons I make this comparison is, is because I think we really need to rethink how Buddhism actually spread. Um, since all too often it is seen, you know, I'm not being facetious here, but it's like, you know, it's like a benign force. It's like, you know, transmitted by marshmallows and pixie dust or whatever. I mean, um, you know, but I mean, as with any ideology or religion or economic system or whatever, um, that comes to co- cover half the known world, then clearly there's a little bit more than just benign kind of everything's great and it's all peaceful and, and all, and all good. Um, you know, it invariably entails violence and exploitation. I mean, you know, I mean, anybody who does any kind of studies on empire, that's part and parcel of, of, of how it works. And again, like, you know, going back to the modern Buddhist kind of problem, you know, because Buddhism has such a positive cachet, because it's just about meditation, because it's the Dalai Lama is peaceful, um, this dimension of it is never really considered. I mean, I know there's an enormous amount of excellent scholarship on like the spread of Buddhism, talking about assimilation and mandalization, and there's all these kind of great models that people use. But I also think a lot of them kind of like downplay, you know, the the exploitative kind of components of this. You know, so like going back to the the you know question earlier about the views on nature, I think, you know, again, one of the you know components of this, and this is building on the work of Fabio Rambelli, you know, this idea this kind of you know, glorification of nature. And this, again, happens in ja- Chinese and Japanese Buddhism. They say, oh, plants and animals can become enlightened, or particularly plants can become enlightened. And as he, like, you know, does the kind of archaeological work or historical archival work, he comes to the realization, well, the reason that they made this argument is that they wanted to basically take this these resources from other people and bring them into the Buddhist fold. So it's not like plants can become, or maybe they can become enlightened, I don't know. But I mean, within the you know historical context of why this was happening, is that Buddhism was using this as a technique to claim territory and you know and then exploit it for agriculture or forestry or whatever they're doing, um, and so these things are too often you know not highlighted enough in in my opinion, you know. So like as I quote in the introduction, I mean you know um, it's from Richard Gombrich, you know he's the very well known famous now retired uh, professor of Sanskrit at uh, University of Oxford. And it's on one of his books talking about, you know, how Buddhism is awesome and great. Um, he asked the question, why was Buddhism so successful? And and his answer is, well, it was the beauty of its thought. And yeah, okay, sure, that's true. Um, Buddhism is a phenomenal, beautiful religion. But if I said that about any other kind of phenomenon, if I said it about Islam or communism, sure, there's beautiful ideas in both of those traditions, but nobody would like, you know, think that I'm being, you know, critical or you know historically accurate by saying the only reason that islam spread was the beauty of its ideas or communism because marx was such a great thinker um there's a lot more that goes into it and again in the case of buddhism because of these modern you know discourses and that kind of ahistorical problem modern buddhism i think this kind of this kind of critical analysis is not done or or rarely done or not and in my opinion um not done enough and that's why i make this comparison i think the model of the commodity frontier which is a which is a a kind of a a conceptual model that i take from uh environmental historians to environmental historians working on the british empire because i think it parallels very well the kind of 
the architecture of the Buddhist ecumen. I mean, again, that's a term I take straight from them. You know, they're arguing about like the expansion of the British Empire, and that you know it was, was premised on resource extraction, right? And that and then, so their argument is kind of like environmental extraction, environmental transformation, environmental degrade, degradation was kind of the you know architecture of the British Empire. And I think, you know, if we're going to think about Buddhism, we need to think about, you know, the, or the successful spread of Buddhism, we need to think along, along the same lines. You know, much like the British Empire, Buddhists, they sucked in resources, they devoured natural resources. And then, you know, they, in the process, they transformed them into commodities, you know, through commercial activity, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, part of this, you know, proto-capitalism that I was talking about earlier, you know, and they did this by going out on the commodity frontier. I mean, why did Buddhism spread? Because they're moving into these territories. I mean, like Jacques Journet and his great, you know, book from the 1950s about the, you know, Buddhism and economic history in China. Everybody looks at Buddhist monasteries and they're like, why are they up in like these weird, you know, serene spots outside of early early cities and he says they're not there to escape they're there to extract the resources that are available out in those areas right and so this is this kind of idea of the commodity frontier you know buddhism is is a is a mode of extraction you know and these are what i say like underpin you know the deep structures of the buddhist ecumen you know, these are spatial, they're environmental, and they're socioeconomic forces. And again, if we understand Buddhism, you know, and the Buddhist world, Asian history, environmental history, you know, we need to make these connections. You know, I mean, Buddhism did, as I try and hopefully show in the book, it did radically change Asia's, Asia's environment because of these capital, I mean, proto-capitalistic um, underpinnings that, you know, ex- justified expansion. So again, what I try to do in this chapter is show precisely how these processes kind of developed in terms of the Buddhist role, particularly um, in, in Buddhist monasteries, in the introduction of money. I mean, again, this economic historians across Asia have always shown Buddhist, they were the ones who come in and, and introduce money, they commodify the natural world. Um, and so you know, again, you know, but also, I mean, on the other side of this, it's not just, oh, here's some money, get me some, you know, resin from up in up in borneo or something like that but it also you know looks at how buddhists see the other right again this is kind of popular view buddhism is peaceful and like loving and compassion and all the rest of it but when you look at the text and like how they talk about like people on the frontier or the natives whatever term you want to use um obviously it's pretty much the same kind of language kind of dehumanizing language that you find in kind of british colonial literature like you know why go into india well because they're backwards they're primitive they don't have civilization we're giving this this stuff and that's how buddhists talk about you know the 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 people on the borders right they're savages you know and they you know they're basically a hindrance for me to extract the resources out of there out of there or the other the other you know classic kind of you know european imperialist model there are no people there like the native americans they don't matter and you know we'll just crush them underfoot and we'll extract all of the you know resources out of the american west or whatever and so it's surprising when you look at these texts this is exactly how buddhism talks about you know this kind of stuff and so this is this you know i think it's important to make um you know bring this to the fore to think about buddhism was successful precisely because it operated very similar to modern, you know, European colonialism, um, you know, and so we know from his, history. I mean, Buddhism went from India to Japan, you know, Indonesia to Siberia, 
And, you know, this makes clear precisely what they were doing when they were doing this. And, we, you know, by not looking at that, we just have a kind of a blind view or understanding of Buddhism, Buddhist history, and Asian history. Thank you. Um, and chapter eight, agricultural expansions. Um, following this discussion, you view that Buddhists transformed the natural world not only to generate capital for substance, right, for feeding themselves, but also for the production of excess or surplus. And to achieve this, for example, historically um, uh, sophisticated irrigation systems and even slaves uh, were used. So why was this, this generation of excess or surplus such a major part of Buddhist economies? And what effects did they have on the global economy? Well, again, great question. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of issues. Um, uh, yeah, again, I mean, like this argument about generation of ex- excess. I mean, I, I draw this from you know the work of environmental um, historian Peter Boomgard, who works in in Southeast Asia, and he's he's the one who just points out that you know once Buddhism comes in, you know the way of agriculture they move from Swidden agriculture, you know, which is less you know intensive on in the environment, and then they switch to you know more intensive agriculture, precisely in order to create wealth, right? And so this is kind of part and parcel of the prosperity gospel that I think is inherent to the Buddhist tradition. Since it was precisely this this the excess um that confirmed, you know, that the lady you know, that the lady that they were morally righteous, that they were good people, you know, the status, you know, and basically like the more stuff you had, the better person you were understood to be. And as such, you know, on the other side of this, of course, is that you could use this excess, the excess money to support and glorify the Dharma, which, of course, provided the logic that made you generate the wealth in the first place. So in a certain sense, it's kind of like a self-perpetuating cycle, maybe, you know, modern capitalism and consumerism. Um, And as such, you know, one of the main ways, you know, in the pre-modern world, one of the main ways of generating wealth was, was through farming, you know, and, you know, of course, farming is like, praised all over the buddhist the buddhist corpus buddhist canon um but i think like the one great kind of story that kind of encapsulates this is the you know a story from again from the vinya about um you know i mean if you ever seen buddhist robes they they have these square patterns on them and you're like why do they have those things well you know on, in the section of robes uh, of the vinya there's a story of the buddha was walking on top of this mountain with his um disciple and he looks out over the horizon and again, this would be a perfect time to say, oh, isn't this a beautiful look at nature? There's the sunset or whatever. Instead, what does the Buddha say? I love these irrigated fields, right? And so basically, it's, it's not the glorification or like the romantic view of nature. It's basically like man, you know, defacing or deforming or manipulating nature for their own ends. And so that's what he says. Monk robes should literally be sewn in, you know, what those squares on the robes are is irrigated fields. And so this kind of like a profound kind of like you know portrayal or captures very well the Buddhist view of nature and its kind of implications, you know. And so again, you know, this is in the in in the text and you know sewn into the fabric of of the Dharma. But um, there's been a lot of great archaeological work on Buddhism recently, and it, you know, and all of this work has shown that Buddhism. Um, were heavily involved in the expansion of agriculture wherever they went. And more importantly, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, one component of this is also, as you mentioned, the introduction of irrigation. And, you know, again, in terms of, I mean, environments, some people, you know, might think like, oh, well, farming, you know, farming nowadays is almost seen as like natural. That's like 
a good landscape. Um, but, you know, as environmental historians and people like John McNeil, you know, he's argued that the expansion of agriculture is the most important, you know, facet of environmental history from the rise of cities to the modern period. So again, if you're talking about environmental history, you know, this farming expansion is basically the most important thing. And the Buddhists were, you know, at the, for- at the forefront of this. So, you know, what I do in this chapter is look precisely like how Buddhists, you know, John McNeil calls this the frontier process, you know, and so like, what was the Buddhist role in this? You know, and as you noted, this included the development and spread of massive irrigation systems and also the use of slavery. And of course, slavery, you know, I, I highlight this, you know, being my kind of contrarian, whatever, um, trying to re- reconceptualize the Dharma, um, you know, because most people, they don't connect slavery with 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 buddhism or even a, a, even asian history as a whole yet you know again the scholars who are going back and kind of re-evaluating um the history of slavery you know asia had the world's largest slave market and buddhists were heavily involved in it not in buying selling using exploiting all the and all the rest of it and of course it was precisely for the same reason you know that slaves were used in the american south you know it was to expand agriculture and produce capital wealth um and so what I, you know, what I highlight in this chapter and going to back what I call, you know, the three actors of Buddhist history, um, namely the, whatever, the monks, the laity and the state, is that all three of them were heavily involved in agricultural expansion. Indeed, I mean, for, for me, one of the most surprising things when I was like, you know, researching all this, this agricultural stuff was actually how much land Buddhist monasteries actually controlled. You know, you know, Buddhist monasteries have land and resources, but I mean, like the, the, the extent of it was just mind-boggling, at least for me. I mean, like in Korea, monasteries by themselves controlled one-sixth of all arable land. You know, in like 10th century China and various parts, they owned up to a fourth. And if you include, you know, forest resources, they almost controlled half of all available land. You know, and, and like scholars have broken down, like, you know, monks had access to 50 acres, while like the average peasant had access to half an acre. I mean, it's like these crazy wealth disparities and the control of, of these resources, you know, that Buddhist monasteries did. And of course, monks weren't out there plowing the fields or whatever. I mean, it was all done with slave labor, you know. Um, and of course, this is not how we think about Buddhism. But I think it's precisely such kind of rethinking, you know, that I want, you know, that I try to argue in this book. So again, in terms of like environmental history, and the kind of like the the culmination of this chapter is, um, you know, not only were Buddhists heavily involved in, you know, agricultural expansion, you know, in, in general, but they're also fundamental in in in, in transmitting or spreading four crops, right? And these are, you know rice, cotton, sugar, and tea. I mean, for all of these, of course, there's like a whole shelf shelf of, of books arguing like or showing, you know, how these commodities, especially the last three, cotton, sugar, and tea, you know, they were connected with European empires. They created the modern world, modern capitalism, empire, and, you know, and also invariably destroyed the natural world in the process. Um, and but again, as I as I point out, all of these commodities were moved around with Buddhists. When they moved into new areas, they brought rice with them. When they went into new areas, they brought cotton. Right? I mean, you know, it's like Richard Bullitt has argued the kind of the cotton boom of 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 that happened in Iran in the ninth century was basically like Buddhist Buddhist kind of like tanked in India, and the Muslims basically took over the cotton trade, and then of course you know eventually the Europeans did, and we have Manchester and all the rest of it. Um, 
but so again, Buddhists were heavily involved on this kind of uh, on these commodities or moving these commodities. And again, it's all this you know environmental history um, shows these things. These all of these crops radically transform economic system, political system, and, and most pointedly the environment. I mean, they you know, I mean, the sugar cane is one of the worst you know environmental destructive plants out there. That's why you know they moved it out down to whatever the Caribbean and all the rest of it. Um, but it's the same in the in the Buddhist world, right? And so, um, you know, what I argue in the book is like we need to start thinking about what I call it the Buddhist exchange, you know, which of course is an obvious ripoff on the uh, more recent and better better known Colombian exchange. But I think you know the kind of consequences, the kind of profound global consequences that we all readily recognize that were part of the Colombian exchange. The same phenomenon happened in in India a, a millennium earlier. Um, and so again, like you can't, again, kind of like highlighting the Buddhism had an impact, you know, it changed the world. You know, these four crops, you know, are just like, you know, the, whatever, the cherry on the, on the top of the cake or whatever. Um, you know, they were the ones, you know, they were the first ones who produced crystallized sugar. Um, they were heavily involved in the cotton trade, um, et cetera. And tea, of course, which, you know, changed the whole Chinese and East Asian, you know, uh, culture and economy. And you know, tastes and you know, consumption patterns and all the rest of it. This are Buddhists who brought this in, and it's like that needs to be foregrounded. You know, so again, Buddhists did change world history. Um, on chapter nine and ten, uh, following this chapter on agricultural expansions, highlights the the pivotal role that Buddhism plays in the urbanization of Asia, as well as in the politics of landscape. Um, can you elaborate on this point and tell us a little bit more about the politics of landscape? Yeah, sure. Um, before that, let me let me talk. Let's say a little bit about uh, chapter nine and this urbanization. You know, and the role that Buddhism and Buddhism played in the urbanization of Asia. And again, as I mentioned, like several times earlier, you know, on one level, this is nothing new, right? And, and, Scholars have been making this argument of all different kind of disciplinary persuasions, historians, archaeologists, Buddhologists, etc. They've all made, you know, this connection that Buddhism is connected with merchants, you know, merchants, you know, live in cities, they foster urbanization and kind of like this mutual development of cities. Um, so that's not really my, you know, big insight or whatever. Um, so instead, what I want to do is look at the kind of the survey, the archaeological record, and confirm that there is indeed this connection between the appearance of Buddhist traders um, and the growth of cities, um, and you know, and it, it, the evidence that I was able to found is, is you know very well documented um, in South and Southeast Asia. Um, and so, again, but then again, I take the next kind of environmental history question and say, okay, you know, what are the consequences of the kind of the Buddhist glorification of urban life and the kind of the real development of major urban centers as a result of their merchant connections? Um, you know, as we all know, cities are you know, have a huge footprint, you know, where, where the term, you know, um, of, of the title of the book comes from, you know, I mean, again, to kind of like wrap your head around this, you, you take like one city in China, in sixth century China, Jiankan, which is now Nanjing. Um, this city had a population of over a million um, in the sixth century, which is just kind of mind boggling when you compare it to, you know, urban population densities in the West. Um, but it also had 700 Buddhist monasteries and temples and it had 40,000 monks. And so what do you do with that? You know, what is the environmental impact of these urban forms and, you know, and Buddhism's role in it? And of course, in, in working this out, I draw heavily on the work of Richard Hoffman, 
who's done great work on kind of the urban footprint of medieval European cities, which are like nothing of the scale of Asian cities. But I mean, he talks about, you know, what needs to come in to make a city. You need grains, you need animals, you need timber, et cetera. And then what needs to go out? Human waste, trash, disease. Um, and so I use this frame or his Fra Hoffman's framework to try to conceptualize. And indeed, I admit the sources I have to kind of parse this all out are, are scarce. But regardless, I try to show that these Buddhist cities, you know, had an enormous profound, you know, impact on the surrounding environment in terms of environmental history that to my knowledge, you know, nobody's ever made this kind of connection. And so this segues into the, you know, the final chapter about the Buddhist landscape or making a place Buddhist, you know, by building monasteries, temples, stupas, etc. And of course, you know, this is basically a fundamental part of what we can call becoming Buddhist. You know, you can't necessarily be a Buddhist unless you create a Buddhist space. And, you know, one major component of this is transforming the landscape. That's one saturated both with kind of like Buddhist meaning, uh, all these stories of myth, the Buddha flew here, his footprints over there, whatever. But it's also like with the building of massive Buddhist structures, um, which, I mean, if anyone has traveled to Asia, um, these things are monumental. They're huge. Um, you look at the Potala Palace, Borobudur, I mean, Yungan, Grados, or whatever. Um, to make something like that, you need an enormous amount of money. You need an enormous amount of labor to construct it. And people have pointed this out. Um, and of course, this goes back to kind of the prosperity gospel. But, you know, what I want to push with this argument is, is that they also require an enormous amount of natural resources to build and much less, you know, to maintain over the course of the centuries. And that's kind of like the environmental history question that I explore. You know, what did being, a, what did being Buddhist and creating a Buddhist landscape cost the natural world? And again, you know, the sources are scarce, but one, what one can discover when you, know, you dig into these kind of questions, and I hope other scholars will dig into it, you know, in better ways than I do, in more detail than I do. But, you know, you can find fascinating examples. Like, so in Japan, early Japan, um, you know, this is just one example. Japanese uh, Buddhist temples, Buddhist monasteries had to have 10 different distinctive uh, tiles of, of uh, types of tile, like roof tiles. Um, and, you know, obviously to make tiles, you need enormous amounts of wood to fire the kilns in order to, you know, to fire whatever, to create these ceramic uh, uh, tiles. And so invariably, you know, this leads to deforestation. And, you know, the evidence shows that, you know, within within a few decades that the Japanese state started, you know, building these Buddhist state state monasteries all over the uh, all over Japan, that, you know, they had to move the, the, the kilns, you know, 50 miles away, so they would have access to, 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 to trees to, to keep firing this kind of stuff. So that's, you know, just one example. Um, you know, the greatest, even better example is the, you know, whatever, the founding of the Japanese imperial capital. I mean, eventually, you know, because of all these Buddhist monasteries that they built and, you know, temples and, you know, palaces and whatever they were doing, you know, they, they deforested the whole Kenai Peninsula so badly that they had to move move the capital. Um, you know, just the last one is like Todaiji, which is, you know, the famous um, Buddhist temple in, 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 in Japan. And it's also the world's largest wooden building still today. When, when it burned down in the 11th century, they had to, you know, they, of course, needed to get wood and like, you know, um, and, but the wood that they had used to build it, you know, centuries earlier was all gone. 
you know, so basically they had to go into like the far frontiers of Japan in order to extract, you know, the huge timber, you know, the roof beams and all the rest of it. And in doing this, they had to build 118 new dams, whole new irrigation system to move these logs from like the northern part of the island all the way down to, 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 to where Toraji was being rebuilt. And so, you know, all of these things, timber, you know, was, you know, deforestation and all the rest of it. Um, and of course, what I, you know, what I'm trying to press with this is that when people look at a temple or go to a Buddhist monastery, they're like, oh, look how beautiful it is. It's so serene. And, you know, this is wonderful. And, and, and they are. I mean, they're beautiful. But at the same time, you know, much like people talk about like Catholic churches in, in, in medieval Europe, these things required enormous amounts of, of, of resources to be extracted in order, in order to build these things. And, you know, it's it was all built on this. You know, again, and this is this part of environmental history that I want to highlight. And, of course, it's not on just the buildings themselves. It's, and, again, if you've been inside a Buddhist temple there's like all these everything there's the statues there's the the silks the robes the peacock feathers the incense imported from indonesia or whatever and so it's this massive kind of you know global network you know, economic exchange you know that basically went into creating a buddhist landscape you know i mean and so you know as one of my friends likes to say you know buddhist monasteries are basically resource hogs Right. In order to maintain, you just need just like this massive kind of like sucking sound to use a Ross Perot's term from around all of Asia. Right. They're extracting resources from you know Indonesia and wherever, shipping it to China and Japan. Um, and so, you know, again, to get back to the point, you know, until we start thinking about Buddhism in this way, um, you know, or, um, you know, we'll continue. To, I, I don't know. I mean live in like the, the kind of the fantasy land of, of the eco Buddhist paradigm. And like all of this will be ignored um, or overlooked. And in my view, you know, this really tells us nothing about pre-modern Buddhism or Asia's environmental history. And so that's, you know, kind of, you know, the, uh, the idea of the, the landscape um, transformation, the politics of landscape. Thank you for this really important reminder too. And um, to, to follow on that um, in the conclusion chapter, you kind of persuade future historians of Asia, the world, and the environment, as well as uh, Buddhologists, right, of all kinds of disciplines, to engage more centrally with Buddhism as a driving force in Asian and environmental history. So what kind of advice do you have for scholars in these fields who are now on this path? Uh, well, first, obviously, they need to read my book no, uh, <laughs> or, or listen to this interview and at least kind of get inspired. Actually, I mean, that's a great question, but it's also kind of hard. Um, um, and this might sound strange to say this, but in a certain sense, I don't know. I don't know what kind of recommendation, re- recommendations to make, you know, other than basically do it. You know, I mean, like, you know, here here are these things that I've pointed out, um, you know, um, you know, I mean, I get and this is kind of like how any kind of scholarship works. Right. You know, you kind of concoct it, you throw it out there. You know, and then it's conveyed to the to, to everybody through you know through mediums like this. And I thank you very much again for inviting me to talk about the book. Um, and hopefully, others, you know, yourself or whoever, will like look at their materials in new ways and ask new questions. I mean, that's the most important thing in academia is like you know reconceptualizing. You know, not to say what you know scholars did in the 1950s is irrelevant. Of course, everything that that I do is built on what other scholars have done. Um, but you know, I really need to kind of like push the envelope of, you know, how we conceptualize this. Um, and again, I mean, again, my fundamental argument, you know, b- basically going back to my time in Asia was like, 
Um, so much of Asian history, you know, be it economics, politics, technology transfers, disease transmissions, or basically anything you can think of as like part of the historical narrative, um, they included Buddhists, right? But again, because of this kind of modern, you know, ahistorical Weberian approach, this has been c- completely eluded out of our history. Um, and so, you know, basically, that, I mean, again, that, 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 that's my hope. You know, we should always keep in mind that regardless of what we're working on in terms of Asian history, um, you know, we'll never get a full picture of it unless we bring Buddhists into the story. Um, and to that end, I guess, I, you know, bringing this conversation all the way back to where we began, I would strongly recommend everybody to follow the advice of Stephen Tizer, um, who was, he made the argument that, you know, you should not be afraid to read Buddhist texts or to engage with Buddhist study scholarship. There's an enormous amount of phenomenal scholarship done by Buddhologists. And, you know, um, you know, basically Asian historians, world historians, environmental historians, you know, they need, they need to wade into the scholarship and that's not, you know, not considered this weird esoteric subworld of Buddhism and Buddhist studies. Um, because if it doesn't, you know, as I, you know, mentioned in the introduction, you know, as, as Gregory Chopin, the noted scholar of Indian Buddhism at UCLA, you know, he says, unless, you know, um, Buddhologists start doing this themselves, you know, Buddhism is going to become an intellectual backwater, right? So, um, you know, it's not only that other people need to read our work, but we need to do this work ourselves. You know, we need to tell people like this book tries to do, Buddhism matters. Right. And so, you know, and until we we do or until other people start, you know, doing more kinds of the scholarship, we won't solve the Lopez problem, which I think is very important. Thank you. And um, finally, right, uh, we've um, come to the sort of the, the last part of the interview. And before we sort of end our discussion today, um, I have a final question for you, which is sort of traditional to our uh, channel. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about your current projects and uh, the things that you're working on right now? Uh, sure. Um, I have kind of a few things in, in, in the hamper or whatever you want to call it. Um, one of them is I'm working with uh, Chris Atwood, who's now at University of Pennsylvania, doing uh, a Sources of Mongol Tradition for the um, uh, Columbia University Press Series, Introduction to Asian Civilizations, you know, like sources of China, sources of, you know, Korean tradition and all those. And so we're, we're going to do one for the Mongol tradition, which I think would be good. Again, you know, an, one of my sidelines is, of course, trying to make Mongolian studies more part of contemporary American academia, which is a, admit, admittedly an uphill battle, as you probably well know. Um, but Santa Barbara is doing a fantastic job, so that's great. But I mean, so that will kind of uh, help promote that, you know, make, you know, Mongolian sources and Mongol related sources available to China historians, you know, Middle East historians, Indian historians, whatever. Um, but the uh, main monograph um, that I'm working on, my new monograph, is a, is a history of Uyghur Buddhism. Um, so basically, you know, the history of, you know, the conversion, I kind of situated about, you know, the year 1000, the kind of the real conversion happens basically as a response to 
Muslim incursions into, into into Central Asia, and this kind of like you know my argument is this kind of led to this you know Buddhist explosion in in, in the Tongut realms and the Song and you know and and and, and Dunhuang and all the rest of it. So kind of like countering the argument, oh Muslims show up and Buddhism dies. Actually, when Muslims show up, what happens is there's a massive explosion of a very rich Buddhist culture among the Uyghurs, and so we basically trace it over the next 800 years. You know how it develops um, politically how it's tied into economic, you know, slavery and wine growing and all the rest of all that good stuff and also political um, formations and how both of these things relate to their connection with the Mongol Empire, right? When they become basically, as, as Paul Buell put it, they're the step intelligentsia of the, of the Mongol Empire, you know, and how it changes, you know, how it feeds into uh, Mongol theories of, of religious tolerance, which is a big, big topic of discussion. And then finally, it just kind of goes further, you know, past the Mongol Empire and like how it developed, you know, and most importantly, what did, what did, what did they do? Right. you know, what kind of practices like pilgrimage, confession of sins and these other things. And then finally, as we all know, it did go away. Um, And so how and why that happened. So that's, those are the two big things I'm working on right now. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, They both sound like really incredibly exciting projects and definitely when they come out they will be on my reading list for sure and i'm sure many of our listeners reading list as well um well thank you so much again for taking the time mrs pandemic (laughs) right to talk to us about your really exciting new book i have to say i I had a great time reading it and uh, i'm hugely inspired already so thank you so much for sharing that well thank you so much for for inviting me to talk it's been a great pleasure